Well, we are digging into a dark and difficult book, but it's because it was designed to push us to wrestle with what life is really all about. And sooner rather than later. So let me ask you today, do you know why you're here? Why are you in this world? Were you just thrown into this universe, random, no purpose, no rhyme, no reason? Do you know why you're here and what life is really all about? I hope so. But if not, I think this study of Ecclesiastes is going to help you, but in a way that you might not like it first. You say, what do you mean? Oh, it's because Solomon kicks it off by bursting the bubble on everything this world tells us to chase after. And most people don't like their bubble being burst, especially when they're in the middle of chasing so hard after it. But don't make a mistake. This is, he doesn't just burst bubbles. This is not just one bubble bursting book. Here's what's going on. He desperately wants us to see Something else. And so with the deception of shiny bubbles out of the way. You got to get shiny bubbles out of the way first. That's what so often is clouding the real thing. With the deception of shiny bubbles out of the way. He brings into view what worldly bubbles could never do. And you're going to get your first glimpse of it. At the end of chapter 2 today. You see this is not. If some of you almost struggled to come today. You're like this has been a bummer. This is one big bummer summer. With this book you chose Brad. Oh this is not just a dark depressing book. You guys there are some incredible shafts of light. And anchors of hope. That are woven all through this book. And we're going to unpack some of it today. Go to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. This is sermon number 3, so the pages should be unstuck now. You've been there before. (laughs) Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 12, but here's what I want you to do. Just settle in and don't take a mental vacation because I'm reading all the way to the end of chapter 2 because it all goes together. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 12 going all the way to the end of chapter 2. I, the preacher have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. This is not an arrogant statement. God confirms it. God says, I have made Solomon the wisest human being who's ever lived, apart from Jesus Christ. Surpassing all who were in Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Look at me just a minute. 
I don't want to be ignorant. I love learning. I love reading. I love listening to people. But I hope you do realize we're experiencing it today. The more you know, the more you have to be disturbed about. Right? The ignorant person can be fairly happy by just not knowing what's really going on. The more you know, sometimes the more you have to be worried and concerned and disturbed about. He says, vexation and sorrow came with my knowledge. Chapter 2, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. He's signaling ahead of time, you guys, what he's headed into. He's saying, I'm going to do a pleasure experiment. I'm going to run a test. Guess why? So that you don't have to. I'm going to do a pleasure experiment. Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold... This also was vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from... Are you picking up on a pronoun here? I made myself pools from which watered the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. We can confirm this. If you read 1 Kings, it says, During Solomon's reign, he had so much gold, all his drinking vessels, all his walls, everything, the floor, that silver was useless during his day. Silver meant nothing because he had so much gold. I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. If you're new to the Bible, let me help you out here. That is a huge understatement. Many concubines. Read First Kings. The man had seven Hundred wives and 300 concubines. Oh, dear me. I need the grace of God for one. She's delightful, but to learn one, to know one, to, to do life with one. And what this means, you guys, is sadly, he wasn't getting to know any one woman. He was using women for the simple pleasure, raw, standalone sexual pleasure. You know, he could have sexual pleasure with a different woman every day for over two years and never repeat. Concubines, the delight of the children of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Oh, listen to this. This is what we think would make us happy. I see it, but I can't get it. I can't get it. I don't have enough money. That's not my lot in life. He says... Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no... If I saw it and I wanted it, I could have it. Some of you still think, that's why I'm not happy. Oh, I'd be so happy. Pleasure experiment here. Test. No, you wouldn't. I did not keep my heart from any pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity. 
and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Skip to verse 24. Our first turning point, our first shaft of light, our first anchor of hope. There is nothing, chapter 2, verse 24, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and, oh, a new word for the first time. Say it. Say it louder. Wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But God had to give it. Give it. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So what can we learn from Solomon? Number one. He wants you, oh, he wants you to get serious about finding real purpose in life. Oh, he wants you to get serious about finding real purpose in life. Look at chapter one, verse 13 again. And I applied. You hear how that sounds? He had to do something. I applied my heart to seek and to search out wisdom. By wisdom, all that is done under heaven. That Hebrew word for heart, it's not, you know, when we hear heart in our culture, we think, oh, feelings, heart, feelings. In the Hebrew, that word for heart meant mind, will, and emotions. Mind, will. In other words, he says, I threw myself into this. I jumped in with both feet. Mind, will, emotions, and the word seek and search, I know this is a poetical book, and so sometimes when the, in poetry books in the Bible, when two different words are used, they're synonymous. It's just two different ways to say the same thing. That's not the case right here. When he says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out wisdom, that word seek is a Hebrew word that means to drill down into the details or the depth of something, to penetrate down into the depths of it. And the word search means to step back and get the big picture and do a comprehensive survey of something. Two different ways to go about grasping and understanding. In other words, he says, I'm going to zoom in and I'm going to zoom out because I want to figure this out. Sometimes you don't understand what you need to understand because you're too close to it. You're down in the details and can't see the forest for the trees. Other times you're not getting all you need to get because it's 30,000 foot and it's just too big of an overview. Both are advantageous. He says, I'm going to zoom in. I'm going to zoom out because I'm going to figure this out. So let me bring you something right now. Sermon number three, and some of you might be thinking by now, is there anything from this book I should actually do? Like, is there anything like, do that, or is it all bad? Oh, here it is, you guys. This is actually worth emulating. Getting serious about finding what real life is all about. Some of you have not given enough careful thought to what life is all about. You're just living it. You're just living it. 
And here's what you're doing. You're just living it. Because I know it's easy to just get swept up. You're just living it, taking your cues from the culture and your next human impulse. If they say it or I feel it, I do it. If they say it or I feel it, I do it. If they say it or I feel it, and sometimes what they say is do what you feel. These two things are connected. If they say it or I feel it, I do it. Let me tell you why that's such a bad idea. You live long enough, and it doesn't take long, and you start to recognize, guess what? They say a lot of different contradictory things. It's changing constantly what they say. This used to be listed as a mental illness, and now it's a good thing. It used to be a mental illness, and then it was good, and now it's great. It's to be celebrated. In fact, do this. They are changing constantly what they say. Oh, but I hope you realize, and you will feel a lot of different contradictory feelings. They say different things, you feel different things. They say different things, you feel different things. If you step onto that path, you will end up living in your own personal tsunami, spinning in your own little tsunami of confusion, depression, destruction, confusion, depression, destruction, all the while saying, I thought I was supposed to be happy because if you do what you feel, that's authentic. If I do what I think I feel and I want, that would make me happy. That's a lie. You will end up spinning in your own personal tsunami of confusion, depression, and destruction. Just wondering and complaining out loud why you're not happy. Why you're not happy until finally, you ready? Until finally you decide for yourself. No one else can do it for you. Not what they say, not what I feel, but what does God say? And hallelujah, he hasn't changed what he's been saying. He doesn't change. What he says doesn't change. He doesn't change. What he says doesn't change. What does God say about me, this world, and how I was actually designed to live? Me, this world, and how I was actually designed to live. And at that moment, when you make that choice, you won't have such high highs and low lows and the tsunami spinning of your life. Don't hear me saying pain-free, hurt-free, perfect life. Nope. But oh my goodness, a tsunami of confusion and depression and destruction is not what God designed you for. You will begin to settle for the first time. But it's when you decide, I haven't been designed to do everything they say. I haven't even been designed to do everything I feel. News alert for some of you. Do you realize you don't have to do what you feel? Boom! Oh, game changer. You mean I don't have to do what I feel? Right. It's a really good decision. Oh, not what they say, not what I feel. If I did what I felt, I wouldn't still be your pastor. I probably still wouldn't be married. All kinds of bad things would have happened. If I wake up on some days and I'm like, I feel horrible. I feel like running away. I feel all kinds of stuff. And I say, feelings, yeah, you can just squeal and squirm and carry on there. I'm not going to do what I feel. I'm going to do 
what God says. I'm going to go with what I know, not what I feel. I'm going to go with who I know, not what I feel. Oh, and it's a fight some days. It's a fight. But oh, when you make that decision, some of the spinning of your personal little tsunami of confusion and destruction begins to settle. Number two, here's what else we can learn from Solomon. Number two, he wants you to get honest. Oh, get honest about what you can and cannot control. Oh, fixing things, controlling things are one of our greatest human obsessions. I want to fix it. I want to control it. I want to fix it. I want to control it. I want to fix it. I want to control it. So check out verse 15 again. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, he's saying, you don't even have all the data. You lack stuff. You can't even count it. You can't line it up and figure it all out because you don't even have all the information you need because you're not God. You're finite. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, we'll never get this all sorted out on our own. We'll never get this all sorted out on our own, you guys. Because the real problem is a sin problem that left us and all of creation under a curse and in bondage to futility. If you're like, oh my goodness, the longer I live, the more frustrated I am. Life's hard. Relationships are hard. Things go sideways so easily. I'm startled constantly by, yeah, under a curse in bondage to futility. Yes, we're still created in the image of God. Hallelujah. From birth, image bearers in the image of God. We are in the image of God. But we're living in a sin-cursed, fallen world because of our rebellion against that same God. And in that moment when Adam and Eve rebelled and it passed on to us that same sin nature that we're born with from, from birth, the tether was severed that connected us and all of creation to a good, wise, loving, personal God. That tether was severed, shattered. And so here's what you need to understand that the world just can't get a hold of. Education. I love learning. I love learning. I love reading. I love listening. Education. Medication and information will never fix this. Our world thinks educate, educate, educate. The Nazis were were one of the most educated nations in the world when they slaughtered several million Jews. Can you be well-educated and do heinous things? Yes. Yes. It's not education. Oh, medication. I am grateful for America, grateful for doctors, grateful for medication, But we're in a day now where the answer is medicate, 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 medicate. If it helps you and relieves some of the pain, I'm all for it. But I want you to realize you can be medicated and it still hasn't addressed the real problem. I just can't think as clearly about the problem. I'm now numb to the problem, but the problem stayed the same. 
not education, not medication, not information. Oh, don't we live in a day where, oh, awareness, 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 just make people aware. Hashtag this, hashtag that. People can be aware and still do the same terrible things. It's not education. It's not medication. It's not information. You know what it is? We need reconciliation with a good, wise, loving, personal God. The real problem underneath it all is a sin problem that left us separated and alienated from God. The reason we treat each other the way we do is because we're, we have a horizontal problem and lack of relationship with God. But we keep thinking the problem is, no, 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 no. I just don't have enough of the right stuff. I don't have enough of the right stuff. And so, oh, number three, Solomon says, please, please, please get over what the world tells you to chase after. Please get over it. Sooner rather than later, get over it. Because he says, I can testify. I did the pleasure experiment. I did a test so that you don't have to. I did a test so that you don't have to. I chased after. I didn't just chase it. I got it. I got everything that the world says would do it. And it didn't. He says liquor and laughter won't last. I love laughter. Praise God for the gift of laughter. Studies actually show the good things that happen to you even in a healing process from laughter. But you just cannot, you cannot watch enough sitcoms to just keep laughing. After a while, the awareness of what's really going on creeps back in. Alcohol is not a sin. But oh my goodness, if you head down that path of thinking, I'll just stay so. What you meant as a good thing then becomes an addiction and it owns you. It owns you. He says, liquor and laughter won't do it. It won't last. That's what he's saying in verse 2 to 3. Then he says in verse 4 to 6. Oh, what about projects and possessions? We're created in the image of God. So working, doing something, building a business, making plans and executing those plans are so satisfying. I hope you realize that. It's because we're created in the image of God. We're workers. But guess what he acknowledges? You can work yourself to death, building a business, establishing something. And he says, you're going to leave it all to someone else. And you have no idea how they'll manage it. Frightening, huh? I've watched. I'm old enough now. I've watched how many businesses get run into the ground in just one generation, for sure two generations, because the kids and grandkids didn't work like you work, and they go out and buy planes and motorhomes. And before you know it, the business is toast. It's done. It's gone. You worked so hard for that brand or that whatever. Someone else is going to own it and manage it when you're gone. And they just might not do it the way you were doing. Projects and possessions get passed on, verses four to six. Song and sex will never satisfy. I love music. I love all kinds of music. And I want it to sound really good. Therefore, I own Bose's all around the house. Bose alarm clock, Bose in the living room. If you're gonna play it, make it sound like Boston is in the room. Right? But after a while, just music and sex alone. It's interesting. When he uses that word concubines right there in verse 8, it is literally an odd Hebrew word word that does not mean woman. 
because he's not even seeing them as women. It's a word, shod, that literally just means breast. He's just using women for sexual pleasure. And that also, just like alcohol or anything else, will put you on a path that enough is never enough. And then you've got to have more. And you've got to have it different. And then you've got to cross the line and do something heinous. You will end up addicted and destroying yourself as well as others in the way you're treating women. Song and sex won't satisfy, he says. Verse 9, fame and fulfillment. Oh, man, we live in a day just because of social media. If you have a keyboard and access to media, you could actually become somebody and start posting your little Instapot meals. And before you know it, you got 800 people following you. And then it becomes the burden of, now I've got to cook something amazing and show another picture, another picture, another picture, another picture. How many likes do I have? How many followers do I have? (gasps) And he says, listen, Fame and fulfillment. Oh, listen, wake up, people. Fade fast. Our culture does not remember anybody for long. I love NFL football, and that's, that's where I see it every time. I'm, I'm just embarrassed at halftime if they drag any of these guys out onto the field that are being inducted into the Hall of Fame. It's embarrassing. No one's even listening while the announcer's talking. They're talking to each other. And then the applause is just pathetic. It's embarrassing. And the guys are standing there awkwardly. Guess what? By the time they induct you into the Hall of Fame, nobody today knows your name. Guess what? Those 60,000 people packed in that stadium, they don't know you. They're there to see this new 22-year-old who plays. And they have jerseys of him. Not you. Not you. Not you. Fame and fulfillment fade fat. Praise God, I am not living for the fame of my name here. I know if Jesus delays his return, you guys will move on and people will say, Brad Bigney, who? Brad Bigney, who? That's why I chose, I told the builder, do not put my name on the sign. That was intentional. Say grace, fellowship, not Pastor Brad Bigney. I may die in a plane crash, but for sure, I will be moving on. It's God and his son, Jesus Christ, who are the head, and his name will last forever. Fame and fulfillment fade fast. He says in verse 16, there's no enduring remembrance. People don't remember. And you're like, okay, Brad, This is a lot like the first two messages. When do we get hopeful? Where's the shaft of light? Where's the anchor of hope, big guy? Here we go, ready? Number four, here comes hope. Here comes light. Oh, he wants you to get excited about what God can do in your life. Oh, we're going to look at verses 24 to 26 again. Because unlike the Apostle Paul, you know, when you read Paul's letters, Romans or any of his letters, it's like God is in every other verse. We have slogged our way through two chapters now with one mention of God. And it was simply God has given us the hard, difficult business of life. We've slogged through two chapters now through the bubbles and brokenness of this world until finally Solomon brings God back into view. But as I said earlier, often nobody sees what you're trying to make much of until you get out of the way what they are making much of. He's gone after shiny bubbles, 
the deception of the worldly bubbles first. And now he's like, oh, look at this. Oh, look at this. Look at this. I want you to notice how bringing God back into view changes the tone of these verses. The tone right here goes from the depressing, the depressing mood of philosophy of life under the sun. This is it. There is no more. Get over it. There's nothing outside of right here, right now. Just get over it. It moves from the depressing philosophy of life under the sun to the refreshing reality of a good, giving God in the midst of it with us. With us. With us. With us. And here's the deal. When God comes back into view and he's your God in your life, it changes how you perceive what's going on around you. Oh, don't make a mistake. God back into view and in your life does not change what's happening. Do Christians still get cancer? Do they still lose jobs? Do they still get rebellious kids? It doesn't change what's happening, but oh my goodness, you guys, it changes how we perceive and receive what's happening all around us. That's what God at the center of your life does. Look at it again, verses 24 to 26. There's nothing better. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? These are rhetorical questions. You cannot, you will not have enjoyment without God. For the one who pleases God, God has given wisdom and knowledge and what else? Joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. Up until this point, God has basically been out of the picture. But now we have God mentioned three times in three verses. Three times in three verses. Three times in three verses. And he's going to show up eight more times in the next chapter three. So what difference, what difference does a living God make in the midst of a broken world? Well, he's going to highlight three areas. Solomon highlights three areas of what difference does it make? You're telling me I can't change my circumstances. Yeah. So what difference does a living, giving, loving, personal, wise God make in the midst of my life then? Letter A. Here's the first. He says, you'll be able to receive what you could never achieve. You'll be able to receive what you could never achieve. Solomon wants you to know that true satisfaction is possible. It is, but not without God. Not without God. Because we can't bestow it on ourselves. No matter how hard we try to achieve it, you have to receive it. Because it has to be given. Three times in verse 26. Look at your verse. Three times in verse 26 we have the word give. 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 God is a giving. Giving. Living God. Always has been. He's a giver. He's a giver. And he has to give you satisfaction and joy. And so when it comes to joy and purpose... And peace, oh, 
When it comes to joy and purpose and peace, it turns out that we were designed to be receivers, not achievers, not achievers. In fact, you only get joy and peace and purpose from God himself, and he gives it to you when you receive him into your life through his son, Jesus Christ. That's how you get joy and peace and purpose. Oh, human beings prowl the marketplace of our world. They keep prowling the marketplace of our world, and I hope it's not you, trying to find joy and peace and purpose. But you can't find it and you can't buy it. It has to be given to you by God. You can't find it apart from God. Here's how I'd say it to you. These things are not sold separately. Human beings are like, give me joy, give me peace, give me purpose. But not God. That would be the end of fun. Let me help you. These things are not sold separately. Joy and peace and purpose come with God, come with God, come with God. Having the tether repaired, being reconciled, being repaired, being in relationship with a good, loving, wise, personal God that doesn't change what's happening to you or around you, but it radically changes how you perceive and receive what's happening all to you and around you. He says you'll be able to receive what you could never Achieve. You actually get what you need most and long for most when you receive him into your life. And so contrary to the world's relentless drumbeat, it is not about you reaching your dream, you fulfilling your potential, and it is certainly not about you crafting and customizing your own identity and truth It is about you recognizing the shocking reality of your frailty and desperate need to be tethered to a good, wise, loving, personal God. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. Oh, but there's more. Look at what else happens when a living God comes back into the picture and into your life. Letter B. You'll go from chasing the extraordinary to enjoying the ordinary. Well, there's an idea. Oh, my goodness. We're living in a day, are we not? We're living in a day where people pay exorbitant amounts of money for the next extraordinary experience. All the while, real joy could be found in their backyard. I can't tell you how many, Christ, how many brand new Christians, I just had one at our year-end small group cookout, describe coming to faith in Christ. This guy was 26. He's like, oh my goodness. As I got in my car, I'm like, the sky is bluer. The sun is sunnier. I hear birds. I see. He had battled with depression for 12 years and was on all kinds of medication, hearing voices, struggling with suicidal thoughts, and he gave his life to Jesus Christ, and it ended And the world exploded with color and sound and joy. His circumstances didn't change. His job didn't change. His health condition didn't change. He was once again back to where we all were pre-Genesis 3, tethered to a good, wise, loving God through his son, Jesus Christ. 
And he had the capacity now to enjoy. Here's what we actually need. The capacity to enjoy the little, mundane, ordinary things that we take for granted, that we so often take for granted. Oh, our world is all about the obsession of possession. I got to possess more. I got to possess more. You know what you actually need? Real joy comes when you have the capacity to express gratitude for the little, mundane, ordinary things like hot coffee, air conditioning, indoor plumbing, flush. I don't even have to go outside. Do you ever think about that? Indoor plumbing, the laughter of a two-year-old, the laughter of your grandchild, the cackle and twinkle of their eyes. Does that ever move you? It should. It's delightful. The laughter of a two-year-old, the symphony of birds, the color of an orchid, oh, the smell of fresh cut cucumbers. The other day I was all the way across the room in my chair reading a book. I said, did you just slice cucumbers? She's like, yeah. I said, oh my word. That's one of the most amazing, delightful, refreshing smells. God gave us cucumbers. Oh my word. The smell of fresh cut cucumbers. The smell of fresh cut summertime watermelon. The sound of a string quartet or a James Taylor guitar drop down tune D. I play guitar, so it matters. Oh, the taste of grilled meat or caramelized anything. Caramelized cardboard. Delightful. (laughs) Grilled meat or caramelized anything. Oh, the shafts of light that filter through and burst through your backyard trees. The ink black sky that frames up a moon and a million stars that look like diamonds. Or the turn of a phrase. In the sentence of a well-written book that takes you places you've never been to experience people you've never met. And I'm just getting started. I could talk about the smell of spring rain, the smell of a fresh mowed field in the summertime, the look of reprocessed wood from an old barn or the aqua color of a robin's egg. This is the world he's given us. And what we really need is the capacity to enjoy the ordinary because it is quite extraordinary. Because it all comes from the hand of a good God. Oh, he's a giver. He's a giver. He's a giver. Oh, and so real joy is found when you move from trying to seize the extraordinary and you slow down to savor the ordinary and to express gratitude. For everything he's given you every day. It's the same thing the Apostle Paul was talking about in 1 Timothy when he talks about a God who's given us richly all things to enjoy. So don't make a mistake about verse 24. Solomon is not settling into the nihilistic slogan. Oh, life is so hard. Let's just go ahead, eat, drink, be merry for tomorrow we die. That's not what he's doing. Look at verse 24 again. He is saying there is nothing better. He's saying the world tells you, you got to pay big money and experience something amazing. He's like, I'll tell you something better. To enjoy the ordinary. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat. Start tasting what you're eating. Drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This I saw is coming from the 
hand of God. Listen to me, especially if you're young. One of the biggest lies and most slanderous thoughts that we have running in our culture about our God is that he's a killjoy. He is actually the author of joy. And you get joy when you get him. Oh, oh, because the Holy Spirit comes with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He's not a killjoy. He's the author of joy, and he loves to give it to us. But these things are not sold separately. When you say yes to him, you say yes to joy, peace, and purpose in your life. In your life. Well, let me show you one more thing that happens let her see, you'll go from the exhaustion of living for self to the joy of pleasing him. You realize that as much as you think you want it, you ready? It's living for self that's wearing you out. It's living for self that is so exhausting and frustrating because you were made to live for him. So when you begin to please him, you begin to thrive. It's not a burden. It's not a duty. It's a joy. I come alive. This is what I was made for. This is what I was made for. This is what I was made for. You begin to, two times in verse 26, he talks about the one who pleases God. And Solomon was an old man before he figured this out. But you don't have to be old, my friend. Good news. You don't have to be old to figure this out. You can find it when you're young if you give your life to Jesus Christ. Oh, I plead with you. Give your life to Jesus Christ sooner rather than later. And I love it as an older man now when I see evidence and examples of young people like the guy at the cookout I just talked about who are way beyond their years. They found it. They're living it now. I want you to watch a video clip of a group of young ladies. And this is their pre-game interview as they're headed into the NCAA World Series of Women's Softball. And it's interesting. I don't know why he did it, but the interviewer chose to focus on what we're talking about. He looked at these ladies, young ladies, and said, how do you maintain joy in the midst of this much pressure and anxiety? They'd been number one the entire year with a target on their back. How do you maintain joy in the midst of so much pressure and anxiety? Listen to what they said. The only way that you can have a joy that doesn't fade away is from the Lord. And any other type of joy is actually happiness that comes from circumstances and outcomes. Thankfully, we've had a lot of success this year. But if it was the other way around, uh, joy from the Lord is the only thing that can keep you embracing those memories, moments, friendships, and all of that. So... Uh, I would, that's really the only the only answer to that because there's no other way that softball can bring you that um, because of how much failure comes in it and just how much of a roller coaster the game can be. You can't find a fulfillment in an outcome, whether it's good or bad. And um, I think that's why we're so steady in what we do and, and our love for each other and our love for the game because we know this game is giving us the opportunity to glorify God. No matter the outcome, whether we get a trophy in the end or not, we're, this isn't our home, and I think that's what's amazing about it is we have so much more. We have an eternity of joy with our Father, and I'm so excited about that. And, yes, I live in the moment, but I know this isn't my home, and um, no matter what, my sisters in Christ will be there with me in the end um, when we're with our, our King. So, 
Oh, my goodness. Wow. I'm like, what church do they go to? Who's teaching them? Because this is from the Bible. And oh, to be that young and already get it. Joy is not found in circumstances. Notice how often they said, joy, we're not home. And there's a King Jesus. Joy, we're not home. And there's a King Jesus. Oh, these girls are grounded and rooted in what Solomon wants you to get a hold of. And the rest of the Bible. One thing about the book of Ecclesiastes, just please know, you do not want to read this book in isolation. This book sets you up for the rest of the Bible. The rest of the Bible gives a lot of the answers. And so let me take you to a place that unpacks further what I'm actually bringing you in verses 24 to 26. This is what you're actually longing for. And it's coming. Go to Revelation 21. Revelation chapter 21. So often people go to Revelation for the wars and the battles. And is that a helicopter? And is that a tank? And, and is Biden the Antichrist? That's not a great reason to go to the Revelation. There are some amazing worship scenes and some amazing insights and promises that will keep you going and growing and persevering and rejoicing along the way. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Hallelujah. We need something new, don't we? We need new. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is, say it, with man. With man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne said, behold, he was seated on the throne is Jesus. Behold, I am making all things, say it, new. New. Write it down. And he said, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. What you're actually longing for is free. And yet people are running around spending money on what doesn't satisfy. That's why in Isaiah chapter 55 verse 1 and 2, jot that down. It's not in your bulletin. Isaiah 55 1 and 2, he says, come to me. Come to me. Come to me. And he says, why do you spend your money on what does not satisfy? Come to me. What you are longing for and what you actually need and want most is to be reconciled to your creator God through his son Jesus Christ and have joy and peace and purpose flood your life. Oh God, thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you for being a good God. Thank you for being a giving God. Thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for being a pursuing God to the point that you took on flesh and came into this world to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Oh, God, use us in the midst of hard circumstances. May people see joy and peace and purpose that are unconnected to circumstances and say, what is this? How do you do that? And allow us to point to your son. Oh God, because of our sinful flesh, we still wander and turn back to the same drinking spots, trying to get satisfied in the same old places. Bring us back to Jesus to drink deeply and to be fully satisfied in living waters. And for anyone here who does not know you, God, make today the day that they stop thinking joy and peace and purpose are sold separately. And they say, yes, come into my life. Oh, God, we thank you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.